we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello and welcome, dear listener. Yes, this is a podcast, The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove, and we do it every Tuesday night, Brisbane time, where we talk about news and politics and sex and religion, all the things that you're not supposed to talk about at a dinner party, and consequently people are not very good at talking about these topics, so we aim to remedy that here on this podcast, which we're live streaming. If you're in the chat room, say hello. We'll try and incorporate your messages. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. The Iron Fist, with me as always. For some reason on your tag you've got Badger Warrior, but he is in fact the tech guy, Joe. How are you, Joe? I'm good, thanks. And I advertised that we would have Scott the Velvet Glove on and he got on nice and early in preparation to try and sort out technical issues. It just seems that his internet connection in regional Australia, Mackay, just isn't strong enough, doesn't have the NBN there yet. So In the third world country. Yeah. So it's just not going to work with Scott. So sorry for the false advertising in the lead up where you thought Scott would be joining us, but unfortunately just he didn't have enough power in his internet to to meet the requirements and he's Mackay listening to us probably. Hello, Scott, if you are. So anyway, look, some people might have stumbled across the podcast this time because I, well, on Thursday I'm going to record a podcast which will be released Friday, Saturday, which some international people might hear. And if you're one of those international people and you thought you'd check out the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove and see what I do here, then I just have to say this particular episode, we're really going to talk about a lot of Australian stuff, which may not be of interest to you. So if you're international and you're not into Australian stuff, go to the previous episode which is episode 364. Look, fast forward to the 53rd minute. Talk about money and in the 59th minute I talk about Japan, Korea and Taiwan explaining why those countries got ahead when other countries have remained developing third world countries. How did they get ahead? It's quite an interesting interesting story. So if you're one of those people, that's my recommendation. Otherwise, stick around for some Australian content because basically we had an election, a state election here in Victoria and the first part of the podcast we're going to talk about the wash-up from that state election, what the result means, what we can learn from it and then we'll be getting into other topics related to Ukraine, bombed Poland. We've got Elon Musk to talk about, protests in China, computer chips, sanctions, how that's going to affect China, Taiwan, US relations. Might poke some fun at libertarians, have a look at Venezuela with oil prices and where, time permitting, the Japanese and the Plaza Accord. That's the sort of variety we get and uh, that's where we're heading. In the chat room is Landon Hardbottom. Good on you, Landon. So, okay, let's kick off with... Victorian election. So down in Victoria, dictator Dan won, pretty much retaining the numbers that he had before. And dictator Dan won a democratic election. How did he yes, manage that? Indeed. And all the polls were showing 
that that would be the likely result. But I think we've become so gun-shy of polls in recent years, Joe, that we just don't trust them. And, you know, if you're pro-Dan, you're quite fearful maybe the polls were correct, but in the end the polls were, were accurate. And given that he won in a landslide last time, the Liberals should have been able to peg back some seats, but they didn't, completely failed. And it seemed to be a really pathetic roll-up of candidates, uh, just an, a collection of oddballs and religious nutters and just no-hopers were presented as candidates. They had a leader who was uninspiring and offered nothing and it was really a pretty easy run for Dan Andrews just to What he offered that. was not being Dan Andrews. And, yes. and everyone should have gone for that because, you know, Dan Andrews is a nasty man who forced the poor, poor Victorians into lockdown. Yeah, so we'll get into that. Joe, for anyone wondering, there was a party called the Angry Victorians Party and with 65% of the vote counted, they had attracted 664 votes. So this person on Twitter suggests that by the next election, they won't be the Angry Victorians Party, they'll be the furious. Look, I, I think the anti-lockdown mob all moved up here. Oh, I don't know. There's the, the cookers. Something like 20,000 migrants, interstate migrants into Queensland to October 22, I think. Mm. Yep. Yep. There's a lot of interstate migration from Sydney as well. Mm. Yeah. Discovering what it's like. And even down in Melbourne, last week they had hail, cold snap, they turned the heaters back on, Joe, down mm-hmm. there. Crazy. Why would you live there? Bronwyn, what are you doing down there? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> we had a, a vendor presentation last week and one of the guys had come from Canberra and mm. he said, oh, I'm glad to be up here. It was There was snow in the hills around Canberra. Yeah. So anyway, look, what's the takeaway? What can we look at? sort of examining the entrails of this election. And really uh, the key feature of the election was the efforts by the mainstream media, the Murdoch Press and the Costello Nine network, their efforts to uh, just a completely biased reporting and so anti-Dan that it was it was comical and laughable, their efforts to try and paint him as a bad man. So that, I think, was a key feature and it seems a key feature is just Liberal Party around Australia, including the the Victorians, having no idea of how they have lost connection with the average person that they need to... We're not far enough right. We need to be further right. Indeed. So, dear listener, I've got here... And I'm sorry to do this to you. How much Sky News do you watch, <laughs> Joe? Absolutely zero. I don't watch TV. Yeah. You're going to watch three minutes more than what you normally would. <laughs> right. But I think this is instructive because this is a panel discussion held before the result was known in the Sky News. There's a Labor guy talking about what the issues were, a bunch of rabid right-wingers, Sky hosts and others who just want to shout him down. 
And uh, I think this is really instructive of where our society has got to. This kind of sums up the election in many ways, I think. So we'll play this one. Across the line, let's get back to our panel. Stephen Conroy, that, that element to this election, even Andrew Clonell and I were walking after lunch today and, and someone came up to us and said, we've got to get rid of Andrews. And, and so what's your read on that? Because people f feel much more inclined, if they are opposed to him, to speak up very forcefully against him. That, I think ultimately the quiet Victorian, I think Lisa made the point, the majority of Victorians, they did it tough and they want to move on. Uh, but they supported what was done. And it was bipartisan for most of it, almost the whole way. So there are a large vocal minority that, you know, wants to say, you know, Daniel Andrews is the devil incarnate. But the is it more vocal than you've seen? So probably, probably since the Kennedy days? I think when you, you get the sort of daily propaganda coming out of some of the media outlets, you, you, you just... Don't, don't just whipping. blame the media. Come on. No, I'm talking... I mean, uh, seriously. I'm talking about front page after front page after front page, which has been an attempt at a character assessment. But you said that no one... Come to the Herald Sun didn't influence anyone. It's completely... You said no one read the Herald Sun. failed. If any of that was half true, why wouldn't have people felt the same way about the Western Australian Premier? I mean, that's or the Queensland Premier. Or the Queensland Premier. Political people who blame the media insult the intelligence of voters, Stephen. Insult the intelligence of voters. The insult to Victorian voters has been the campaign by the Herald Sun. That has been the insult to Victorian voters. Are you saying voters can't make up their own mind? They have made up their own mind. And yes. they've rejected Stephen, the drivel, right. the drivel about two steps, um, the drivel about but, but, um, car accidents. They have rejected clearly, it, are, and they're going to reject it tonight. There's clearly probably 40% of the population who are very unhappy with Dan Andrews. Let's not talk just about the breadth, it's the depth of feeling. Don't you feel that? I mean, that's the real I, challenge I, I, for I this guy who tonight. a strong, vocal, passionately vocal anti-Dan. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I said that. But the vast majority, the majority, not the strong vocal minority, the majority... Majority, maybe not vast majority. The, we'll find out tonight. The quiet yeah. Victorians are voting for Dan. <laughs> Hang on, that's our line. You can't steal the quiet Victorians. I'm sorry. The quiet Victorians um, are voting uh, yeah, for Dan. And I, and oh, and he I might think, have a point. I think, I think that's right. I think that... I mean, John Major he, was right. He was. The Labor guy is absolutely spot on with what happened. He's living in the real world. Those other characters are just in a fantasy land of denial. Yeah, between, between Murdoch and the Cookers. Yep. But otherwise, no. Just, they're just in complete denial and fantasy land. So, you know, one thing I'll take up against what he said was he said it was Murdoch Press was failed. This, this campaign failed. And I would say it had a couple of successes. Every vote above 5% for the Liberals was actually a win. Like, same with the last federal election when everyone said, oh, isn't, it just shows that Murdoch lost. Well, I, know with the, I don't know the Victorian opposition particularly well, but I knew the Liberal government very well, the Morrison government. Mm-hmm. And that more than 5% of the population would vote for him was a win for the Murdoch press in that election. And I think probably the same here. That Why 5%? Well, because there's, 
because there's always five percent crazies. Like yeah, yeah, but can, then there's also thirty percent rusted on liberal voters. Just, maybe forty percent. Just to pluck a figure, I just think that you know if if they were running it properly, certainly in the last federal election, you, you know nobody except Scott and his mother would have voted for the Morris, Morrison government. So. They had a win that way in that it wasn't as bad as it should have been. And the second one was uh, the other part that really wasn't a failure that was a win was this generation of hate against Dan Andrews. I mean, that's what they tried to do and they did succeed in splitting the community at least 70-30 or whatever where they really did create a vocal minority who were rabid in their dislike of Dan Andrews. So they succeeded in convincing a certain number, a significant number of people to that way of thinking. So it didn't fail entirely. But part marks for the mainstream media, I would say. <laughs> I, I think you're seeing the people who vote liberal every time and aren't ever going to mm. change. Yeah. I think in terms of success in the swayable voters? Probably not. Mm. Mm. Malcolm Turnbull said in a tweet, he said, at the heart of the Liberal Party defeat in the Victorian election is the paradox that in this, the most small-L Liberal state in Australia, the Liberal Party has been taken over by the hard right and is therefore at odds with the electorate whose support it seeks. That's, that's true. true of the Australia, the Liberal Party across... The the country. Indeed it is. So he says it. And look, I've got a little bit more Sky News for you in a clip as well. Yay. Given the result and their sad faces, I'm, instead of Sky News, they've become cry news. So I'll just find this one here because this has got one of my favourites, who of course is Rowan Dean. So no, no, actually, I think I've got, I think I've got this one of Kroger first. I'll do, I'll do this one with Kroger. Because, you know, we had this issue with the stairs that Dan fell down and the media painting it as some sort of conspiracy without saying what they thought the story was, but they just weren't accepting that he fell down these stairs and hurt himself. But they couldn't provide an alternative story. The same with the car crash that his wife was involved with when she was driving. You know, they kept talking about it without offering some alternative but just waving smoke around and saying there's something smoky here yes exactly (laughs) and michael kroger is here in this one he's michael kroger is let me just give you his credentials so former australian lawyer he was president of the victorian liberal party from 87 to 92 and from 2015 to 2018 and he's considered a member of the conservative faction so he's he was the president of the Liberal Party, 2015 to 2018, and you'll see in this clip that he's actually supporting this conspiracy theory in some way, or not denying it. Or anyway, you have a look and be the judge. Something is, is it improper or illegal? Running ongoing stories about two steps, okay, is a joke. Yeah, there is nothing there. No, all the crazy. And there have been some crazy conspiracy theories being fueled by idiot stories about two steps, okay? Inviting people to want to believe the crazy 
uh, conspiracy where, stories. Where had Andrew that's, been, what's been, that's what's been going on. Where had, Andrew been the night where, where had Andrew's been the night before? I have no idea. Okay, I have no idea. No one has ever come forward and suggested anything. Well, why hasn't he come you're forward? You're at it again. Why hasn't he you're come forward and explained what happened? The car accident, a tragic... No, he didn't. A tragic incident. Everyone knows what happened, Stephen. Well, fill us in, Michael, because I don't. Well, because the people... I've asked who, lots of people. The people who were there, who, people are there with Andrews in the night before <laughs> are not, uh, uh, refuse to talk about what happened. You know, 800 and 1983. You know, if you have a look, since the 1st of November, so if you look at the Herald Sun stories that have been negative and conspiratorial against Daniel, it's 131 negatives, 16 positives, in terms of the lives, seven negatives and 35 positives. Yeah, I, 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 so, I, I, so I so politicians gain anything this, by complaining no, 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 about no, the media. No, 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 but I'm just saying this that. is... What a, what a mean and nasty lot they are. So bitter, these people. Crazy. The correct answer to where was he the night before was at your mum's. Because, <laughs> <sighs> you know, you can't prove otherwise. Yeah. Like, this is high up former president mm. of the Liberal Party. Where's the shame? They've gone completely crazy. Just nutters. Anyway, that's the state of the Liberal Party in Victoria. Yeah. Where was he the uh, night before? Who cares? Yeah. Is it relevant? Mm. According to Laurie Oakes, Liberal Party is starting to look like Jonestown. I think that's right. So, Well, as long as they drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, yeah. So, Apparently um, it's a really good bit of propaganda because it wasn't Kool-Aid, it was some other manufacturer. Yes, I think that's right. And they right. managed to persuade everyone that it was Kool-Aid and it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, let me see. Oh, and I will play, actually, I should have played this Rowan Dean one as well, just to finish off with crazy clips. Yeah, we'll just play a bit of Rowan Dean because I've got him here and uh, with Rita Benini. I'm really gathering all the crazies for you. Here we go. They literally had no conservative policies, not even one. That's right, and that's why they lost. They, that's the whole point. If you don't stand for your what you're... But, but, but that's you, not if you the are the Conservative Party in Australia, well, well, they're idiots, aren't they? If you are the Conservative Party in Australia, the party of Menzies, and you don't stand for solid conservative values, absolutely four in front, then you are going to lose. Peter Dutton, listen and watch. You are going to lose. We've seen it in every single election when Liberals move to the left, when Liberals become liberal lights or linos, liberals in name only, woke liberals, Birmingham liberals, brag liberals, you will lose. Sharma liberals, you will lose. Zimmerman liberals, you will lose. Wake up, Liberal Party, sit up and go, okay, we want to be a conservative party and kick out every single member that will not espouse to liberal core liberal values otherwise you are finished because no one wants no one wants a left-leaning liberal woke party nobody thank you who's the idiot <laughs> well no not one to go godwin there but his arm gesturing <laughs> reminded me awfully of hitler at his rallies 
It's so shouty, these people on Sky. So shouty. Yeah. But there you go. Like the advice is that the Liberal opposition was just not right-wing enough, yeah, not absolutely. liberal enough. Peter Dutton, full of, pay attention. Full of lefty, woke you should be You should be goose-stepping into every press conference and you'll win the majority vote. Yeah. So, you know, we've been saying it for years that here in Australia we've been adopting, uh, the Liberal Party has been adopting the Republican playbook. The Christians have taken over, contaminated them. We've certainly got the media class the same as the crazy sort of Fox News and whatever in the US. And uh, There was that quote I found you, wasn't there, from yeah, Barry Goldwater? Yes. Yeah. Where was that one? Goldwater. I'll play it. Where he said, mark my word, if and when these preachers get control, oh, this is from 50 years ago, Goldwater said this, mark my word, if and when these preachers get control of the Republican Party and they're sure trying to do so, it's going to be a terrible damn problem. Frankly, these people frighten me. Politics and governing demand compromise, but these Christians believe they're acting in the name of God, so they can't and won't compromise. I know. I've tried to deal with them. So, Very prescient. Yeah. It was for 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Indeed, it was. So, you know, um, ABC, not much better because the ABC just repeats stuff they hear in the other media, which is the Murdoch media. So Too you've got a... that they'll be criticised for being left-leaning. Yeah. And so you've got... saw this tweet and it was referring to a Johanna Nicholson who is a reporter on ABC and it just gave the intro of some of her questions to Dan Andrews and some of her questions were... Why has your government allowed the health system to get so bad? Why hasn't it been funded properly? Why haven't we seen as much of you? Opinion on you in Victoria is personally very divided. These are very leading uh, questions, framing everything in a negative light. You wouldn't call them neutral questions in any sense. So that's typical of, you know, what we see on the ABC. Mm-hmm. They're not that much better. There we go. So that's Victorian election in a nutshell. It looks terrible for Liberal Party in Victoria and it looks terrible for them nationally. I was going to say it's not WA. Hmm. What do you mean it's not WA? Well, after the trouncing the Liberals got in WA. Yes. Victoria's probably breathing a sigh of relief. That it wasn't as bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, ah, it's amazing. It's, I still maintain it's the Liberal Party's heading for a split and the Christians will maintain control and sort of teal-like people within the party will split off, eventually form their own teal party of some sort. That's my prediction. Um, but the Labor Party has its own Christian nutters, Joe. And I see the Rationalist Rational Society has been very active in trying to get prayers in Parliament removed in various councils and state parliaments and obviously the federal parliament. So I wonder what their chances are in the federal parliament with the Speaker Milton Dick. And 
If you're wondering as well, then after this clip you won't it, be left it, wondering. I was going to say, it sounds like a sexually transmitted infection, Milton Dick. Yes, it does. And here he is at some breakfast or whatever. So this is the current Speaker of the House of Representatives in our, in our federal parliament. In times of difficulty and in times of need, God hears our prayers. And particularly during the pandemic where there were people feeling isolated, alone, scared, God heard those prayers and guided our nation. So it was very important for me as a Christian, but also as a person of faith, to make sure that as a leader, we never forget who we're representing, how we're representing them and why we're representing them and make sure those prayers are heard. We're in a time of great division in the world. How do you think that prayer can be a unifying act? Well, I think by praying, it reminds us all how small we are and just how important those prayers are, particularly at this difficult time for the world and some of the challenges that our country is facing. And God is the great unifier. And you only need to look in this room where you've seen people from around the country who've traveled far to join us in prayer today. People from different political beliefs and values from across our parliaments and Senate to make sure that as a country we unify and make sure that those prayers for those in need, for those, as the Governor-General said, for those who are doing it particularly difficult now, more than ever, our country needs to be unified and those prayers that will be in this room and outside this room and across Australia, God will listen and God will provide. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Yep, everyone should be unified behind one God, but it has to be the right God. This podcast does get depressing at times, doesn't it, when we demonstrate... What's Dutton doing in a prayer breakfast? You can see a vote in it. He's a non-believer. Well, no, he claims to be Christian. Does he? I think so. I thought thought he was a non-believer. No, I think he would have a... I thought he just towed the party line. he, He wouldn't be as overt as the others, so... Oh, my goodness me. These are, where are the grown-ups? Where are they? They're not in the Governor-General's house, Joe. <laughs> no. We've mentioned before uh-huh. about the Governor-General's wife and one of her claim to fames was that she reads the Bible while hula-hooping in the morning. I remember talking about this ages ago and... Apparently she's got quite a thing for singing at government house functions, so much so that the Department of Foreign Affairs now warns all visitors to say, sorry, but be prepared. The Governor-General's wife will undoubtedly start a singing session and there's nothing we can do about it. You'll probably be asked to sing You Are My Sunshine. That's her favourite song. Okay. <laughs> the thing about You Are My Sunshine, Joe, is that the chorus is lovely, mm-hmm. but the actual verses in You Are My Sunshine are terrible, very depressing, like psychopathic sort of uh, treatment of, of, a, of a partner, like not good at all. So she, she avoids those and just repeats the, the chorus endlessly. Right. And so, you know. At least it's not I mean, Kumbaya. 
I think completely I might be better. Anyway, if you do get, dear listener, an invite to Parliament House, uh, for sure this is some of the sort of stuff you'll be treated to. We'll meet again when it's over. We'll hug and kiss, shake hands. We're all in this together. So let's all lend a hand. We miss the human touch. We like to see our friends. Our families across the world will celebrate when this ends. That was very unfair. There was no content warning. That's right, yeah. I think so. we're going to have London vomiting again. <laughs> Look, it's so good. I've got it on my soundboard now, so in future. Oh, God. I just need to pull that out. I think it could be useful. It's depressing. Anyway, at least her husband's doing a good job. I mean, it's not like he's swearing in Scott Morrison on multiple ministries and not telling anybody. No. Whoops. Yeah. So still on Federal Parliament, they had a visitor this week, Jordan Peterson. Great man. Spoke to the usual suspects. Scotty, Matt Canavan, all the people you could imagine, or basically Liberal and National Party, complete nutters, and had them entranced. So that was Jordan Peterson in our National Parliament and they were just lapping it up. And good luck to anybody who thinks that the Liberal Party is turning around in a direction they need to. They're just going harder. They also spout nonsense and like the sound of their own voice. So, yeah, makes sense mm. that he fits in with them. Yeah, and he's got a bit of a preacher sort of style to him as well. Yeah. So. so, yeah, that was that was Federal Parliament. I wrote you some thoughts on the state of our of where we're at bit of a summary. I'll run through it. We have allowed psychopaths to take control of our vital institutions. Anthony Albanese is not a psychopath, but he is not in control. He wants to get rid of the tax breaks for the rich, but he can't. He doesn't want Australia to send submarines into the South China Sea to launch missiles at China, but that is what his government is trying to buy. He can't control the military-industrial complex. He is a victim of the Murdoch press, but he can't stop it. He wants Julian Assange out of Belmarsh prison, probably, I think, but he can't openly call for it. He cannot control the Labor Party, can only influence its faction. It could be worse. He could be trying to do things from within the Liberal Party. So the Liberal Party of Australia is undergoing a Trump-like reformation. Highly motivated evangelical Christians are ruthlessly branch-stacking their way to complete control of the party. Oligarchic liberals don't care, as they know they can cut neoliberal deals with the evangelicals. Like young children, progressive liberals cling to the fairy tales spun by the Howard Thatcher and Reagan years. They have swallowed the libertarian mantra of small government and individual freedom at all costs, but they don't want to mix it with Bronze Age morality. They look on with bewilderment as the evangelicals take over. Ironically, they dismiss the value of collective action while watching Pentecostals win out by virtue of superior teamwork. Many progressive liberals are nice people. Unfortunately, they naively believe what is written in Murdoch papers. They are too trusting. 
remove their access to right-wing media and give them a dose of cynicism and they will vote left. If that doesn't work, then just wait a while as they transition from middle to lower class. That might do it. The Murdoch media purposefully gave up on humanity a long time ago, but it has now been joined by the nine Costello press, which dropped its pants and exposed its bias in the recent Victorian election campaign. The ABC has declined dramatically. It's now staffed by two types. The first type are Murdoch rejects, who enjoy parroting right-wing talking points. The second type are lightweight stenographers, who don't understand complex issues and don't want to be found out. They consequently resort to repeating right-wing themes, save for the knowledge that by swimming with the mainstream narrative, their ignorance is less likely to be exposed. So with no effective media surveillance, powerful interests get away with rotting our society. Ordinary people don't know how effectively they are being screwed. The capitalist model relies on growth that cannot be sustained. America has run out of opportunities to exploit. The low-hanging fruit is gone. China will repel America and America will not accept defeat. It It cannot afford to. America's allies and enemies will abandon it, the US dollar will lose its status and suddenly the US economy will be compared to a banana republic whose specialty is making weapons. The only question is how much America will lash out at foreign friends and enemies before succumbing. So the coming collapse and hardship is avoidable, the solutions are obvious, but our species has not evolved to deal with the society we exist in. We are hardwired to self-regulate in a village of 150 We need new tools to overcome the oligarchs. The answer must surely include education and knowledge. Extreme hardship will eventually lead to revolution and change, but as time passes, the oligarchs will also eventually regain power. They will hide the truth and leave no time for knowledge seeking, and we will be back to where we are now. Is there a solution to this cycle? I have a suggestion. Next time, when the system collapses... The workers or the proletariat must be ready to implement a working-class shock doctrine. They must be ready to entrench pro-social laws in constitutional reform. They must resolve the ideas now, do all the arguing, and get the paperwork ready. So that's how I see it. It's all quite depressing. (laughs) That's a summary of my study of society uh, as I see it at the moment. Any disagreement, Joe, or a bit not as bleak? I don't know. I mean, sure, you'll get revolution, mm. but generally you don't get a utopia after a revolution. You get mm. military governments, dictatorships. Mm. Not, not always. Sometimes you get. Rarely. Yeah. If you're allowed to. Mm. And I don't know that. I suppose, yeah, if you're doing a shock doctrine and forcing it through whilst the world is in turmoil, maybe mm. you'll get... But as, the, as vested, a, the vested interests will be fighting mm. hard against that. Yeah. As an example, we should have had been ready in a financial crisis if the banks are going to go bust, then... Nationalise them. Exactly. Same with Qantas. Mm-hmm. In a national emergency, if, if Qantas is going to go bust then the government takes control, the shareholders lose out. Mm-hmm. And we should make that decision now, 
so that when it happens, we just take it, pounce it, go, do it, rather than arguing about it later. So we should foresee some of these events and and have the arguments ready to go. I think that's the sort of thing we could be doing. Buy the shares at market price. Yeah. And if the company's completely collapsed, that might be zero. Mm-hmm. Yep. And investors in banks and these large corporations, I mean, you're, supposed to, be a re- you're supposed to be rewarded for risk, but there's often just no risk with these people. They get bailed out. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's the sort of thing too that we could decide in advance. Yes, too big to fail. We should have we – should, we should pass now a too big to fail act mm-hmm. so that when one happens, it all – the, the the nationalisation just happens automatically. Yeah. If it's too big to fail, it gets nationalised mm. and the shareholders get a nominal value. Mm. Right, okay. I've played too many clips. I'm not going to play this one. I'll play that for another day. Um, you would have heard in America about the, the guy who, the Colorado shooter, and when they interviewed his... Who, who the right-wingers alleged... He was non-binary. He used mm. they, them, and mm. therefore it couldn't have been a hate crime because they I – mean, that's a whole other question. Should we be using the term hate crime or is a crime a crime, whether it's driven mm. by whatever motivation? Anyway, yes. a- alleged that this person was not anti-gay because they were non-binary. Yes. And apparently that was a load of bullshit. Yes. Did you see the interview with his father? I did. So the father was worried. Or at least I saw son, the quote. Well, I saw the interviews. His father was worried mm. because his son had actually, his father mumbles a lot. It's not great video, but essentially he was worried that his son was gay because he was in a gay bar. And when he was, when he realised he was there to shoot people, he was actually relieved. Mm-hmm. That was okay. At least he wasn't gay because we don't do the gay, was his words. Yes. <laughs> that is where things have reached. It's like fiction, isn't it? It's dystopian. It's, it's Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd rather my son was a mass murderer than yeah. gay. Yeah. It's where we're at. Mm-hmm. If you wrote this stuff, people would just say it's just all too fanciful. Po- Poe's Law? <laughs> Poe's Law was... Oh, you can't parody a creationist. Right. Because any, anything stupid you make up, they've already said. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. Ukraine. Well, a bomb landed in Poland. Well, it was a missile. Yes. A missile, yes. And initial talk was that it had come from Russia. Well, that was mm-hmm. the initial report from the Associated Press. And yes. that, of course turned out to be incorrect and became clear that, in fact, it had come from the Ukrainians rather than from the Russians. Yeah, it was an, it was an anti-missile missile, an anti-aircraft missile yes. that had gone off course. Yes. Killed a farmer and his helper, I think it was. Yeah. But unhelpfully, the Associated Press had reported that it had come from the Russians and the reporter responsible has been fired and in the sort of examination of what went on in the communication room for Australia, Associated Press, I'll just read a bit of an extract. 
from this article. Laporta was the the Laporta is the reporter who was responsible and got sacked. Laporta shared the U.S. officials' tip in an electronic message around 1:30 p.m. Eastern Time. An editor immediately asked if AP Associated Press should issue an alert on this tip, or quote, would we need confirmation from another source and or Poland, end quote. After further discussion, a second editor in the Associated Press office said she would vote for publishing that it had happened, adding, quote, I can't imagine a US intelligence official would be wrong on this because that was where the source came from, a US intelligence official. And this editor of a newspaper said, I can't imagine a US intelligence official would be wrong on this. And as this article in the John Menadue blog says, can you imagine not being able to imagine a US intelligence official being wrong? This would be an unacceptable position for any educated adult to hold, much less a journalist, still less an editor, and still less an editor on one of the most influential news agencies on earth. These are people who publish the news reports we read to find out what's happening in the world. This is the baby-brained level of thinking these people are serving the public interest with. I think I might retitle this episode, Joe, a baby-brained level of thinking. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's been arguments that journalism is not what it was 30, 40 years ago. No. They are... Underfunded, overworked. Don't have time to think. No. Don't have time to check sources. Got to get it out. Mm. Mm. There was a headline in the Washington Post. Vaccinated people now make up a majority of COVID deaths. They have been all along. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, this isn't. The Timbuktu rag, like this is the Washington Post. Vaccinated people now make up a majority of COVID deaths. Well, of course they will because... But, but literally vaccinated... that's an argument that's been going for at least a year, a year and a half. Yeah. That's not news. Yeah. Vaccinated people make up the majority of the population. And exactly. In the segment that are likely to die, elderly, of course they're the mm-hmm. majority of people. It's just a nonsensical use of a statistic. Yeah, well, the Washington Post haven't exactly showered themselves in glory in the recent past. No, I like this one. I saw this in an article somewhere. There have been other changes in the world of celebrity interviews in the 22 years since I started at The Guardian. Back then, people largely laughed at celebrities when they made political statements. Now they yell at them if they don't. So they... Nervily plastered their Instagram pages with their thoughts about social justice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good point. Mm. Joe, got any thoughts on Elon Musk? Have you ever held any strong opinions about him in any way, shape, or form? I thought there was a quote that people are realizing now that he's very good at writing his own biography mm. and he's not the genius engineer that he was selling himself as. Indeed. So now this sounds like a YouTube channel you would subscribe to, Joe, called Common Sense Skeptic. Mm, Have you ever heard of them? Don't know if I've ever watched them. Pretty good, seemingly. 
So they've done a series of exposés on Elon Musk and there'll be a link in the show notes to it. And I was watching two of them. First one dealt with his involvement in Tesla and it really demonstrated how there were some really smart people involved in Tesla way before Elon Musk got involved and his involvement was really to add expensive, unnecessary modifications to what they were doing. Oh, it's the Homer. The what? There's an episode of The Simpsons where he finds his long-lost brother who's in Detroit uh, and gets invited to make a car and the car he makes is just so fanciful that the, the Homer, as it's called, is totally unsuccessful. Right, okay. Well, in this case, Tesla was a success despite Elon Musk and it's quite a forensic sort of look at at how that played out with reference to court documents and other things and really showing him out to be a really nasty piece of work. But I also saw, hmm. and I don't know if it was in this or elsewhere I saw, he has rewritten the history of Tesla. Yes. And in the court documents, in his settlements with these early founders, Mm -hmm. the people who founded it, he, he, as part of his settlement, insisted that he be allowed to write the history of Tesla so that he could put himself down as a founder. So, and there's reference to the court documents. So it's a really damning display of, of, how little he contributed and, in fact, what difficulties he actually contributed. And then secondly, it then goes into the current valuation of Tesla and how it's completely insane. Mm-hmm. The It makes absolutely no sense at all if you look at the normal multiples of price earnings and whatever to reach a valuation for a company. It's completely beyond anything... It's, no, it's uh, all about all hype. It's, it's another dot-com yes. bubble, isn't it? Yes. So, Joe, you know, I, I initially was looking at all this Twitter stuff with Elon Musk and thinking, well, the guy must be a smart guy, He's probably a ruthless, no, mm. almost certainly a ruthless psychopath, but probably seemingly able to drive people to make great products in a sort of a Steve Jobs sort of way. And it's... It's not shaping up that way at all. And he, you know, if he collapses Twitter, if it, if it all just turns to shit, which seems now more likely than not, advertisers aren't going to go back to it. It's going to uh, run uh, out of money. He's in a feud with Apple at the moment. Yes. Because apparently they've pulled all their advertising. Yes. And so, yeah, he's, he's not happy with Apple and Apple's saying, well, we don't have to. Mm-hmm. In fact, I saw this great screenshot where Elon Musk was complaining that Apple had pulled its advertising and this person said, well, they don't have to, you're doing it for them. And the screenshot was one of Elon's tweets and it's got his tweet and then it's got Twitter on iPhone or something like that as as part of the subscript at the end of each tweet. So every tweet oh, yeah. that Elon does demonstrates that he's doing it from, from an, an iPhone. iPhone. Mm-hmm. Yes. Why bother advertising? <laughs> Well, yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a high chance that that, that will run out of money and 
at some point there's a high chance that the whole Tesla empire will collapse. That's where all of his money is. And if he has, you know, borrowed because of its valuation and the valuation collapses to where it should be, it could all come down very, very quickly. It'd be interesting to see in five or ten years' time where Elon Musk is. Having heard people looking at electric cars, they've said basically the Tesla is an American car. It, mm. it It's badly built. The quality control is not there and there are Korean cars that are just as good, possibly even better, mm. uh, and they're built with Korean QA. Mm. Just why would you buy a Tesla? But I've met a couple of people who have Teslas and they love it and they're almost evangelical in their recommending of it. So, well, I, I, I think mm. it, it's different from normal cars. But then I think if you jumped into, have they compared any other electric car? I don't know. It, it is is it just an electric car that is so different? Mm. Maybe. I think it, it's another one of these high. It's a status symbol, isn't it? A Tesla. Mm. Whereas if you turn up in a Hyundai, everyone goes, eh, "It's a Hyundai." Yeah, all these friends of mine, they just love it. I think it's. I think it's brilliant. So, well, look, I, 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 yeah. I think if I could afford one, I'd very happily have an electric car. Mm. Yeah. So, anyway, Musk has really cultivated, it seems, a right wing incel following who think he's the Messiah. Well, he, mo- he moved in- to Texas, didn't he, from California? I don't know. Because Texas labour laws were a lot lip, a lot looser. Right. And therefore yeah. he could union bust, which California, being much more left-wing, mm. he, he basically, he runs the place like a dictatorship and California wouldn't let him. Mm. Yep. So I'll just, I'll just play. Here's Musk talking about sex and procreation and, and see if this inspires you to consider him as brilliant in any way in any way. 11 children a so far. massive amount of thinking like truly stupendous amount of thinking has gone into sex okay. without purpose without procreation without procreation which, yeah. which which is actually quite a silly action in the absence of procreation why are you doing it Assuming because it makes the limbic system happy that's why that's why but it's pretty absurd really <laughs> but i mean this is a lot of computation has gone into how can I do more of that with <laughs> procreation not even being a factor. He really is like a Bond villain. The name, mannerisms, the craziness. He he bears no real cost to having children. Yes. Money is no object. If if he if he was to bear cost of having children yeah. If it impacted his life in any way, in any mm. meaningful way, mm. I, I don't know that he would be so cavalier. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, one, one of his children has disowned him. I mean, you grow up the beneficiary of an emerald empire in an apartheid state and you kind of turn out a bit odd, it seems. Who'd have mm. thought? Uh, um, have you seen the interviews with his father? No. <laughs> he, he's a character. Right. I'm going to detox after the Sky News ones that I do. 
going to take a break after every Rowan Dean clip that I record and upload. Um, there's definitely been Behind the Bastards episodes about Elon Musk. Right. But I'm not sure if it was that that I heard the interviews, saw the interviews. Yeah. I've definitely seen somebody talking to his father who I think also was heavily into the procreation. Okay. So I definitely recommend go onto YouTube, look up Common Sense Skeptic, look at the one about Tesla, and and then there's another one where they talk about how he made his money from PayPal. And that was, again, another case where he really didn't contribute much. It was more that he forced his way in to something that was already existing and drove useful people out and his contribution to that is not inspiring. So if you're interested in Elon Musk's story, have a look at both of those and see what you think about him afterwards, I would say. In the chat room, Tom the Warehouse guy is there and uh, Alison's made it as well. Tom says, hypothetical question, what do you think would have happened if it turned out the missile was from Russia? So huh, what would have happened? I guess Russia would have said, sorry, whoops, mistakes happen and didn't mean that one. Yeah, yeah. if it was an act of war on NATO, then all NATO countries mm. are forced to go in to defend mm. the country. However, I can see a lot of negotiation going on. Yeah, and I could see Russia saying, well, that was a mistake. And mm -hmm. the Americans don't want to fight in Ukraine. The the Americans want to fight this war to the last Ukrainian. They don't want to mm. do it themselves. So Nothing wrong I, with a good I, proxy war. I think they would have been happy to just to go, well, that was a mistake, but here's some more money in missiles and you, you Ukrainians, keep fighting. I think uh, it's probably... I can very much see them going, here you go, as a sanction against Russia, we're going to give more arms to Ukraine. Yes. So I think that would be my best guess, Tom the Warehouse guy. So... All right, that was Elon Musk. Um, protests in China, Joe, and depending what media source you read, these protests seem to be protests about lockdown conditions. Yes. Where, and it, it's the zero COVID approach yeah. and they're disagreeing with that. Yes. So fair enough. It sounds pretty draconian. And guess what? China wouldn't be the first country to have civilians protesting and having some fairly nasty confrontations with police. Mm -hmm. And Maybe they can get the magic death ray out that they used in Canberra and give them all sunburn. Uh, Is that what the cookers used? Oh, didn't you hear about that? They had a death ray, did they? The, the police had a... Oh, they were saying the police were doing it. Secretly. Yeah, yeah, they, they had an audio... Basically, they had the high-powered speakers that they used to uh, okay. upset people's eardrums. Right. But they didn't turn them on. Mm. And then some of the cookers got sunburn and went, oh, they must have been using microwave radiation to attack us. And it turned, and, and they just got sunburn. You hear stories of shopping centres who want to get rid of kids who are mm. skateboarding or whatever, playing... Really high-frequency sounds, but, yes. No, oh. playing things like Bing Crosby. Yes. Or uh, a sort of old-style music. music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, all they could have done in Canberra was just set up some speakers and just played a, a little bit of... 
Well, maybe. Maybe she could have gone out and sung to them in person. In the end, we'll be okay. That would have done the trick. Maybe there is a use for the Governor General's wife after all. Anyway, Joe, at least I'm sure she... he finds that she has a use. I like this tweet. Usual suspects are out in force on social media telling us in one breath that China is an evil dictatorship that crushes free speech and protests. And in the next breath, claiming there are widespread protests across China. So mm. at least it does demonstrate that there is some level of civil de- disobedience allowed. Mm. Right. Um, I have mentioned about the computer chips, semiconductors, all that sort of stuff where USA has tried to impose sanctions on the supply of of the really top-end computer chip manufacturing equipment to China to try and prevent them from having that. And what's become apparent in recent weeks is that the US is bringing in loads of Taiwan's top semiconductor engineers to build the next generation chip manufacturing lab in Arizona. There's a classic quote, uh, some Americans saying, we'll win the war against China because our Chinese will beat their Chinese. (laughs) Our Chinese, right, okay. Because there was such a brain drain Right. Probably of Taiwanese. Yeah. But if you go to Silicon Valley, most of the CXOs are actually Indian. Right. And there are a lot of Asian engineers. I wouldn't necessarily say Chinese, but lots yeah. and lots of Asians. Yes. So I had a theory that was that China will just ramp up getting really good at making computer chips so it doesn't have to rely on supply from other sources that might be told by the USA to stop supplying. And as a result, plural Taiwan will find itself without an industry and will almost be asking to join China uh, once their industry collapses. And I forgot about the Americans because of you know, it's now apparent that the Americans are doing the same thing where they're just going to take the Taiwanese brains, set up factories in America, and then the poor Taiwanese are going to turn around no longer with their manufacturing niche that they had and they will just be... Well, they were cheap and I don't think they're cheap anymore. Right. In Taiwan? Yeah. It was cheap labour. And then I thought they went to Malaysia. There was a lot of manufacturing going on in Malaysia in the 90s Mm. because, again, cheap labour. Yeah, but they still retain ownership and the complicated stuff in Taiwan and export or or contract out some of the more menial tasks to cheaper countries. So, yeah, I forgot about Taiwan. It, the problem is not China invading them. It is China starting up its own chip manufacturing in competition and also America stealing it and Taiwan being left without anything of significance. So just on what you were saying, Joe, about Silicon Valley, a little bit from an article here, which was, China has submitted the most research papers accepted at a prestigious international academic conference focused on semiconductors, underscoring the country's growing presence in the field, and it bumped the US into second place. So research papers at a big semiconductor conference 
and it's the first time that China has taken the top spot in papers accepted by the International Solid State Circuits Conference, which is considered the Olympics of the semiconductor sector. There you go. All bad news for Taiwan. Mind you, Taiwanese living and working in China. Many Americans and foreigners don't realise how comfortable Taiwanese feel in mainland China. Half a million Taiwanese, about 20% of Taiwan's highly educated workforce, work in China. They don't feel oppressed or discriminated against. In fact, the Taiwanese government is actively trying to stop this brain drain. For example, new laws prevent Taiwan recruiting sites from posting jobs in mainland China. So there you go. Brain drain from Taiwan to China as well. The Taiwanese trying to stop it. Good luck. Mm. The money's there. Mm, Indeed. I'll skip over a couple here. Quick one on Venezuela. I think I've mentioned previously, but I'll mention it again in case I didn't. The US, I think I mentioned actually that France, Macron sidled up to Maduro Mm. at Egypt and said, mate, (laughs) where have you been? Arms around him and we want to do business. Now the US is poised to grant a licence to Chevron to pump oil in Venezuela, a policy shift that would ease years-long sanctions and could open the doors for other companies to do the same. And the new licence is contingent on the Venezuelan government and its political opponents implementing a, a US $3 billion humanitarian program. But guess what? They're going to use... Venezuelan funds unfrozen by the US. So so the US has said, oh, we'll let you do this, but you've got to spend $3 billion on a humanitarian program. And Venezuela has obviously said, well, you better start unfreezing our assets and give it, give it to us. So there you go. A thawing of relations between the US and Venezuela because guess what? US needs some oil. And we'd previously also mentioned about the oil price cap where the different European countries, G20, I think, were basically deciding that they were going to impose an oil price cap on Russian oil and basically refuse to buy it above a certain capped rate. Of course, what will happen is Russia will say, well, here is our price and you're going to pay it or we're just not going to supply you and we'll supply India or we'll supply China or we'll supply Turkey or anywhere else. So this price cap is a ludicrous idea. In any event, they're squabbling over it. So the price cap, which diplomats said could be as high as $70 a barrel, at the, and they're arguing about where the price cap should be. So the European Commission was considering a price between $65 and $70 US a barrel. At the moment, or the time of writing this article, it was $85 a barrel. So the market rate was $85 and they were proposing to cap it at, let's say, $70. Poland wanted the cap to be at $20 
US per barrel. But it said, at one point on Wednesday afternoon, Poland's EU ambassador warned that Warsaw wouldn't sign off on a plan with a price cap as high as $70. Malta's ambassador reported by saying his country wouldn't agree to a cap below $70 per barrel. Obviously, the Malta ambassador is a realist. Poland was backed by Latvia, Estonia and Lithuania. Malta was backed by Greece and Cyprus. So some of them wanting $20 a barrel, some of yeah, them wanting um, and Which one's butt up against Russia and which one's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. So it's just dreaming, like... Poland, where are you going to get your oil from? Like Russia just will not sell it for US $20 a barrel. No, but they want to see a Russia crippled. They don't want a strong Russia on their doorstep. Yeah, well, Russia's just going to sell it to India, Turkey, China. No problem selling it to someone. They're going to sell it to the UK because the stories of how, you know, the UK is supposed to be not buying Russian oil, but... There's all these ships that are meeting in the middle of the ocean and running pipes between each other and they're, and they're just transferring oil in the middle of the ocean. It's going on all the time. So so anyway, that's around the world on those issues. Where are we up to at the moment? 838. We're just going to quickly... I think Jack is in a time warp. Okay. What is Jack saying? Specifically, we bailed them out. I don't know what that's about. Well, I think he was talking about nationalising industries that are going bust. Oh, okay. And now he's talking about Elon. Uh, well, he's probably watching the live stream and he's dragged the timeline back. So I'd say that's what he's doing. So. Yes, that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he is in a time warp. Okay. I quite enjoyed my little explanation of how Japan, Korea and Taiwan got ahead. I found all that quite interesting myself. Hope you did, dear listener. Nobody sent me any positive feedback. So feel free to do so now in the chat room. I can shame you into it. Tre- Trevor wants his ego stroked, people. I, I, I just occasionally, just occasionally would like a little ego stroke. Yeah, I would. So um, let me just quickly, as a follow-up to that, talk about, I can, the James says he loved it. I knew you were James. I thought you were a candidate for liking that one. So let's get some stuff up on the screen and to just do with the Plaza Accord. So as you recall, dear listener, from last week, essentially 1850s American ships roll into what is now Tokyo's port and said, you need to open up your economy to us forthwith. Japan looked at what had happened in China and said, crikey, we don't want that to happen to us. They got really active in industrialising, went around the world, finding out the best ways to organise themselves to get up to speed with these powerful Westerners and by the end of the century were defeating the Russian Navy in a battle at the end of the century. And then moving on to post-Second World War, we had the situation where America wanted to make sure that there was a strong presence to work against those nasty communists. So contrary to what they've done around the rest of the world, they actually worked really hard to bolster up Japan and allowed its industries lots of good breaks that allowed them to develop. And the fact that Japan was unlucky in that it was facing a communist threat and it didn't have any natural resources, so it could only rely on its people, it developed a strong manufacturing sort of 
ethos. And, and yeah, and then America allowed them to create these industries and to retain ownership of them, which was completely contrary to what they'd done in the global south and in particular Latin America. So all going really well for Japan, really, really well post-war and until we get to the Plaza Accord, 1985. So this came from a guy on Twitter and it seemed to be well-referenced and I did look up alternative sources that seemed to confirm this story. So let's run with the story. Somebody can tell me if I got it wrong at some point. But it's impossible to understand the current threat that the US feels from China without first understanding what happened to Japan. And this is the story of the Plaza Accord. So Japan emerged after World War II, as I said, did well. And what, what the Americans did was they pegged currencies to the US dollar. And the US dollar was pegged to gold. And that established the dollar as the global reserve currency. So as a concession, the US allowed Japan to peg the yen to the dollar at a very, very favourable rate of 360 yen to one US dollar. And that really buoyed the uh, Japanese export economy. So a really favourable exchange rate that meant that the Japanese yen was undervalued and therefore they could make stuff a lot cheaper than American factories could, for example. It was a, it was a huge boost for Japan to be able to do that. So, so while initially tolerable, the rapid post-war growth of Japan's export industry quickly allowed them to outcompete US manufacturing by producing similar quality goods at one-third the price. This led to significant anti-Japan reaction in the US, particularly amongst auto workers. So as a result of this growth, experts began predicting in the 70s that Japan could overtake the US as the world's largest economy by the century's end. And this only accelerated when the 1973 oil embargoes were happening. So in the 70s, it looked like Japan was going to overtake the US as the world's largest economy. So there's a chart on the screen which shows GDP and as you can see, Japan was really going very well and that's a graph you'd like to see as they were catching up to the United States on track at some point to overtake them. All going swimmingly well for Japan. And of course, money's flowing into, US dollars are flowing into Japan and with Japan as the now a primary debt holder, the US needed to throw a wrench in the engine driving Japan's growing leverage. So, you know, US couldn't put up with this. Essentially, US was buying heaps of stuff from Japan. Lots of US dollars were going to Japan. Those US dollars were returning back to America to buy treasury bonds. So the US was owing. And land. Well, they weren't. Some land, there were a lot of restrictions started to be placed. They couldn't buy corporations and... There were restrictions in terms of buying industrial assets and stuff. So a lot of what they were forced to buy, they might have been able to buy some land, but America certainly posed restrictions on them and the Saudis where they were not allowed to buy shares in major companies. A lot of it had to be funneled into just US Treasury bonds. 
So into the Plaza Accord. So we had leaders from the top five economies. This is in 1985 and they were at a hotel, I think, called the Plaza or something like that. And it was designed to boost US manufacturing and agricultural exports and to lower the value of US Treasury instruments. So so it was all about America saying, we're uncompetitive with this dollar, we need to do things. So the plan had two parts. The first part was to decrease the value of the US dollar and the second part was to deregulate Japan's economy, loosen monetary policy, liberalise markets and cut government spending. So until that time, banking in Japan was still quite conservative and there's a lot of deep interrelationships between the banks and it was a sort of a conservative lending scenario. And what we find was that there was a period where, I can show you a graph on the screen, where after the Plaza record, the, the value of the yen in comparison, the US dollar dropped in value compared to the yen. And it was a significant drop, like the Plaza Accord worked. Essentially, German, Germany sold a lot of treasury bonds and, and the market was told we're dropping the value of the US dollar and that was enough to drop it. So that's what happened. And other currencies, especially the Japanese currency, increased in value enormously. And... Combined with all this, the uh, reaction from the Japanese then was, geez, we're having a real time, hard time selling stuff now into the US in order to prop up our, our markets, we need to lower interest rates in order to incentivize and boost our corporations because they're having a hard time exporting. So because our dollar is so, our yen now is so is, is less competitive, it's, it's too strong, we'll lower our interest rates. And at the same time, they've been forced to loosen banking requirements. So the normal conservative lending that had taken place before, that sort of atmosphere stopped. Gee, dear listener, just looking back on Australian experience in the last few years, what happens to asset prices when money becomes really, really cheap? And the answer is you get Inflation. a bubble and you get a bubble in asset prices. So the deregulation that followed also led to foreign capital flowing into Japan like a fire hose. Tokyo stock market index rose 49% in the year after the accords. Stock market rose 49% in the year after. By 1989, it had risen 300%. And Japan's stocks comprised almost half the world's equity market capitalization. So you got a huge amount of cheap credit. It's all piled into Japan's real estate sector as well. Massive price bubble. And at the same, a couple of years later in 87, no, Washington piled on a whole bunch of tariffs, 100% tariffs on imports from Japan, really effectively blocking trade from Japan to the USA. So 
Eventually, Japan's financialized frenzy had to end on the eve of 1990. It only took five years. The real estate and stock market bubbles popped, resulting in widespread collapse and sustained stagnation of Japan's economic growth and began a period known as the Lost Decades. And do you remember the graph I showed you where GDP and Japan was on track to eventually overtake the United States? Here's an update of that graph and what happened, and you can see that it completely crashed in compared to the US. And there you go, dear listener, that's what China does not want to happen. Oh, and actually there's another one here. So another graph, yes. So the light blue line shows Japan's percentage of imports into the USA, peaked with the plaza record and then plummeted. And you can see the dark blue line is China. And China has now reached the stage that Japan was once at. And the USA would love to do to China what it did to Japan via the Plaza Accord, but it can't because China just won't let it. So one of the other theories in this article, you get in the full show notes, kind of revolves around the control that America had over the Japanese parliament and political system because kind of like Japan knew this was going to happen, but they did it anyway and lots of sort of allegations and skullduggery about CIA involvement and corruption and control of Japanese parliament. So the correct way you do it is you sail a gunboat up the Yangtze <laughs> and force them to buy opium. Yes, indeed. When and you have a trade um, deficit. Exactly. The old-fashioned way. Mm. Yeah. So I find that all quite fascinating. I hope that you do. Alice and Alison says positive feedback always, I guess, in relation to my plea for feedback. Yes. So thank was you, Alison. That time. And James, I knew James would like that sort of stuff. So that was in Joe. We'll start looking at books because I don't think a lot's happening news-wise in Australia. This Morrison government is far too sensible. And Morrison government's gone. I know Morrison, yes. Albanese, thank you for that. Morrison government, too sensible. Albanese government. I was, you know, with this whole uh, Mastodon Fediverse stuff, I mm-hmm. saw that there was a, a social network site for books, which yeah. is yeah. kind of like Goodreads, but in a Fediverse type of system where yep. you can list the books that you re- you've read and you can share with people, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I tried to use it and it was pretty poor. But then I went on to the Goodreads site. I thought, this is really good. So I've actually loaded up nearly all of my books that I've read in the last seven years onto Goodreads. And I think as a little project, we're going to start working our way on that. So I will put a link on the show notes and the website to my Goodreads list of books. And I'm going to start talking about some of the big ideas that are in, in those books, I think. The, the whole point of Goodreads is you... Friend people. Yes. And swap notes. Yes. So I'm going to sort of advertise what my link is and you can friend me and swap notes and mm-hmm. start working our way through some of these books. And I was able to categorise them, Joe, and like I think, yeah, in the last seven years 
the, I entered about 107 books that I've read mm-hmm. and, and you're able to categorise them and at least 30 of them, the biggest subject was actually economics, seemed to me. So. I just discovered, so Professor Nutt's Drugs Without the Hot Air, mm-hmm. which is he was UK advisor he was the head of the panel, the, the government scientific advisory panel on drug regulation in the UK and got fired because he said, we're not having a evidence-based discussion about drugs. We're, we're villainizing it far more than the evidence shows. Mm. Anyway, the book is really sensible and it starts off with the probably most harmful drug of all, which is alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a discussion of the risks and benefits of all sorts of drugs. Mm. Uh, And he said the thing that inspired this book was a book called Climates Renewable Energy Without the Hot Air. Right, okay. And that is actually, it's a website. Uh, The book is available in print form, but if you're happy to read an e-book, it's available for free on the website, or you can read it as the website. And it is an apolitical all right, uh, what are our physical limits to generating renewable energy? Mm. So what are the best solar panels? How much land can we dedicate to them? Making these assumptions, how much of our current utilisation of energy can we make with solar? How much can we make with biomass? And, And it's literally just a comparison of all the different energy types Mm. and a discussion of how feasible it is. There's there's zero costs involved. He's just going... Do we have the resources in this? Do we have the resources? So if we go nuclear, mm-hmm. what sort of nuclear? If we use this technology, there's mm-hmm. this amount of ore available, which at our current rates right. of utilisation would last us X number of years. Yes. So yeah. it's a good discussion on the physical limits of all the different energy types one of the interesting things was for a given unit of energy an electric car i think was four times more more economical than an internal combustion engine right so even outsourcing your energy generation to a, a a power plant and all the losses inherent in that using an electric car is just four times more efficient. So you're using a quarter of the energy. Yep. The question is, do we have enough lithium or whatever in the world? Well, and, and to... that's a, a different question again. Yes. And then you have to make an assumption. Are you going to let every Chinese family and every African family mm-hmm. have an electric car or just the Western and, and every Indian family or is it just going to be the Western place um, there's there's lots of questions in there. Again, it, it stays away from the political, but he does initially talk about the energy inequality that has happened historically. Mm. You know, we've become modern societies by becoming yeah by being profligate with energy. We've we've used a hell of a lot historically, and therefore per capita should India and China be allowed to be equally as profligate mm. um, until they reach our standard of living. Mm. So I, he, he doesn't argue pro or con, he merely points out that this is the case. Mm. Yeah. Okay, well, 
That and other big issues, I think, is where we're heading over the mm-hmm. next uh, few months. As sort of day-to-day politics really just uh, not a lot happens. So time for some bigger ideas, I think. All right, that's the plan. That's an hour 30. And thank you in the chat room and talk to you next week. Bye for now. And it's a good night from him. As you can see, we've had our eye on you for some time now, Mr. Anderson. It seems that you've been living two lives. One of these lives has a future, and one of them does not. I'm going to be as forthcoming as I can be, Mr. Anderson. You're here because we need your help. My colleagues believe that I'm wasting my time with you, but I believe you wish to do the right thing. We're willing to wipe the slate clean, give you a fresh start. All that we're asking in return is your cooperation and... A simple donation of $1 per episode. Wow, that sounds like a really good deal. But I think I got a better one. How about I give you the finger and you give me my free podcast. Oh, Mr. Anderson. You disappoint me. You can't scare me with this Gestapo crap. I know my rights. I want my free podcast. Tell me, Mr. Anderson, what good is a podcast if you're unable to hear? Oh!